I'm really excited about today because uh, we begin a new journey as a church, this uh, adventure that we are on now called practice. And we're going to talk a lot more about what that is and means here in just a few moments. But before we get to that, I wanted to give you guys a quick update. Uh, a few months ago, we told you a little bit about our friends, uh, Samantha and Stephen Mockford. They were uh, missionaries uh, in the Far East for several years working with students, and they uh, one day got a knock on their door and said, hey, you've got three days to get out of the country. And, and so earlier this, or late summer, early fall, they had to just pack up, get out, and, and they've settled back here in California and came back with basically nothing, just the clothes on their back. And so they reached out to a bunch of different people and said, hey, uh, can you guys help us kind of uh, put our lives back together? We got to be a part of that as a church. We helped them get some bikes. Here's a picture of them uh, on their bikes. They wanted to share that with us, so uh, pretty cool. We were able to raise about $1,000 to help them get all set up with that, and I know it's been a huge blessing to them again as they get back to uh, sort of regular life here in the U.S. So wanted to let you know about that. Thank you again for your generosity as a community. And uh, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to about this year is continuing to update you on the missions partners that we do have who are doing some great work here uh, in the United States but also around the world. And this is one example of that. All right, I know I just prayed, but I want us to pause here for a moment and, and pray one more time as we get ready for this next conversation that we're entering into here. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather, for worship, to hear uh, your word, to be together, to drink coffee, to share these moments. Um, and then God, also for... Uh, uh, the sense of your spirit moving in our lives. God, as we enter into a new phase of life as a church, as a community, would you lead us into your design? Your design for the rhythms and structure of our lives, what leads to us experiencing the abundant, full, eternal life that you came to offer us through Jesus. So we pause here for a moment, God. We take a deep breath, we release the stress of this past week. God, whatever those things are that we bring in to this space with us, we hold them before you now with open hands. We release them to you so that we may be free to hear your voice, free to respond in the ways that we need to respond today. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, there's a great moment in The Lord of the Rings where the two central characters, uh, Sam and Frodo, are uh, they're somewhere in the middle of their journey, and they've already been through a couple of big adventures, but they have this moment of pause and reflection. And it's at this moment that Sam, who's sort of the sidekick best friend of the main character named Frodo, Sam says, Mr. Frodo, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, what sort of tale have we fallen into? This is one of the most profound theological questions you can ask. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. What kind of story are you in? To be a follower of Jesus is to live in a story that is still in process, a story that is still being written. This is what being a follower implies, right? We are going somewhere. We're moving in a particular direction, and we're not quite there yet. We're not finished yet. We're still 
in the making. Activist and educator Paolo Freire says, we make the road by walking. I love this phrase. We make the road by walking. This is the kind of story that we are in. We are in a story that's a journey, that is a road that we walk, a path that we take. Faith, following Jesus, is not a destination. It is a way that must be walked. Not just something to, to think about or read about or even to meditate on, as good as those things might be. It is a way that we have to walk. You must walk it. And it's in the walking that we discover what the New Testament writers call zoe aeneas. Zoe aeneas. This is most often translated as eternal life, but it literally means life of the ages or life to the full. The way of Jesus is a path that we walk that leads us to become more alive, more human, more us. For far too many of us, we either don't understand the story that we are a part of or we are a part of a story that feels like it's already been written for us. The path has already been carved out. We're just sort of going through the motions, trudging along because this is all we know. What else is there? And the invitation of Jesus is, oh, there's so much more. There is so much more. And that is what this, this adventure, this experiment that we're calling practice is all about. We are going to dig into this moreness, the moreness of what it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus, to be formed in this thing called the kingdom of right relationships, formed into Zoe Aeneas, full life, eternal life. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the first of these practices but before we get to that, I want to give us a little bit of kind of foundation to, to build off of. We're going to look at four foundational texts, that, texts that are helping sort of guide this conversation. And then we'll look at four affirmations, things that we sort of hold to be true philosophically, theologically, and biblically. And then we'll start talking about the first of the practices, all right? So if you have a Bible, open to Philippians chapter 2. We're actually going to be flipping around quite a bit, so um, hang with me. But if you would like a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. And someone on our team will uh, come around and make sure you have one of those. Also, that is our gift to you. If you need one, want to take it with you, go ahead and take that with you this morning. But we're going to begin, again, flipping around to a couple of different places. We're going to begin in Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> this first passage is from the NRSV. Everything else will be from the NIV. This is from a writer named Paul, a man who wrote a lot of what we now call the New Testament. He says, therefore, my beloved, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, Philippians 2. Now, Colossians chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I want you to remember that little phrase, in Christ. We'll come back to that later. To this end, I strenuously contend. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works 
in me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, this, these first three texts, all from the same author, this guy named Paul, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come for Zoe Aeneas. And then the last text, Matthew chapter 7, these are the words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Hears these words of Jesus and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So, as we get started in this journey, this adventure, this conversation, we begin with these four texts. We'll come back to them again and again. Now, four, again, affirmations, things that we hold to be true philosophically, theologically, biblically as we enter into this process together. First affirmation is this. We are all being formed by something. Whether we are, are, are aware of it or not, conscious of it or not, whether we've named it or not, we are being formed by something. There is a story that we are living in. And so like Sam and Frodo, we do well to ask this question, what kind of story are we in? What kind of tale have we fallen into? Because the story that we live from forms us and shapes us. We are malleable. We are formable. Now, this leads to a second affirmation, which is this. People can change. Now, this is a, a deep subject. There's tons of debate out there in the world about whether or not people can actually change. There's hard science, soft science. There's nature versus nurture, questions of, of brain wiring and spirituality that go into this. We're not going to get into all of that right here, but we just want to say that we do believe people can change. This is a truth. This is a hope that is at the heart of the gospel. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then in the New Testament, if anyone is in Christ, here's that phrase again. If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone and the new is here. Putting these two affirmations together, we believe that when we practice, when we actually do the things that Jesus asks us to do, we will see change happen. We will see transformation take place. Third affirmation is this. It is God who does the work of transformation. God transforms people. This is not something that we just sort of work really hard to do or manufacture in our lives. This also is not something that we try to do to make God more happy with us or pleased with us or to uh, love us more. God transforms people. We receive that transformation as a gift. It is a grace to be received. And yet, and yet, here, here's one of the profound mysteries of our faith. It is God who does the work of transformation and yet we participate. We participate. This is, again, the mystery and beauty of what we are calling the with God life. God at work in us as we work out our salvation. Now, a classic question that preachers have used for many years is this. If you were going to die tonight, would you go to heaven? 
uh, kind of a loaded question, right? <laughs> I think maybe a better question is this. If you knew you were going to live forever, what kind of person would you like to become? If you knew you were going to live forever, what kind of person would you like to become? This gets us into a, a little uh, sort of vignette here on the difference between trying and training. Because the reality is, if there is a type of person that you hope to become for all of eternity, you will not become that kind of person by accident. You, you will not drift into that kind of life. You don't drift into zoe aeneas. This is something we have to train in. So we receive transformation as a gift, and yet we also strenuously contend for this with all the energy that Jesus gives us. Let me give you an example here. This year, this is a big confession, okay? This year I'm turning 40, all right? Big milestone for me. Some, some of you hopefully are surprised by that. Uh, there we go. <clears throat> Um, so I'm about to turn 40, and, and these are the sorts of moments that, at least for me, cause you, you know, you get to have a little bit of pause, like, oh my goodness, this is a milestone, what does this mean? And I've spent some time reflecting on this and, and asking the question, okay, I've been here for 40 years, has anything happened? Like, what kind of person have I become over these first 40 years of my life? And then the big question, am I becoming the kind of person I'd like to be for eternity? Okay, this moment of pause and reflection has led to, uh, you know, thinking through some things, some hopes, and some goals for the future, for hopefully the next 40 years, should I be lucky to get that many. But one of the goals, and this is definitely not the top goal, but this is one of my goals. This is my 40th birthday present, you guys. I, I, I'm going to try to run a marathon, right? Weird birthday present, but it uh, feels like a good goal for me in this sort of moment. Now, here's, the, here's where we're going with all of this. Something that's become abundantly clear to me as I get older and older, later and later into my 30s, is I cannot just, like, go do physical activities, all right? I cannot just roll out of bed and go run a race the way that I might have been able to do when I was much younger. And so at this stage of life, running a marathon is going to require arranging my life in a particular way. It's going to require some effort, some discipline, and some training, unfortunately. I could show up for the race and, and try really hard, and I'm certain I will die at mile 15. Like, that's just how <laughs> that is going to go. I can try really hard, or I can train. I can prepare my body. I want to become the kind of person who can run 26.2 miles, and so in order to do that, I work out. I strenuously contend. I practice. This is the difference between trying and training. Are you with me? Following Jesus does not mean that we try really hard to be a super religious, uber spiritual person, but it does mean that we train. We are intentional about what forms us. Dallas Willard says it this way, in order to sustain and develop a life of loving abandonment to God, right relationship with God, an overall plan of life is required incorporating, here's the word, practices that care for the inner person. These, he says, are the familiar disciplines for spiritual life. 
in order to sustain and develop a life of loving abandonment to God, an overall plan of life is required incorporating practices. All right, so this is some of the background to this conversation that we now step into. I want to talk for a moment about how this is going to work, some of the logistics involved in this. Because again, we want to engage in these practices not just to feel good about ourselves, but to experience this full life that Jesus offers us. So what we will do over the course of 2020 is consider eight different practices. We're going to look at Sabbath, fasting, prayer, solitude, confession, reading, service, and celebration. Eight different practices, and here's how this is going to work. We're going to spend a Sunday gathering introducing you, inviting you into one of those eight practices. That's what we're doing today. We're going to talk about Sabbath here in just a moment. This, though, is only the, the, the tip of the iceberg. After that, in our groups, you're going to spend the next three to five weeks processing, experimenting, trying things out, learning from each other, helping each other out along in understanding and living out this particular practice. So today we're talking about Sabbath. The next three to five weeks in groups, we're going to be wrestling with how do we actually practice this thing called Sabbath in our lives. Our kids are going to be going through this as well. They're doing this activity over there right now called the Sabbath box. Parents, you'll have to find out what that is after the gathering. But they will also have some resources that they take home with them that you guys can work on together as a family. I think that's going to be super fun for us to do. One of the key things, though, you should hear is this. In order to really engage with this, you need to be in a group. Because, again, it's in that that space with 8 to 12 other people in a living room where you're really going to get into what does this look like? How do we live this out? There is a ton of content out there in the world on, on practices. We've given you some of that in the worship guide. On Thursday of, of this past week, the Bible Project released a 14-part series on Sabbath. I was like, oh, thank you, Bible Project. That really helps. <laughs> I've only watched a couple of the videos, but they're very good. My point is there is an overwhelming amount of content. You could spend the next four weeks just on your own reading through all of that, watching all of that. What you cannot easily replicate, though, is the experience of working this out in community with other people. And so, again, a big invitation now. Join one of our groups if you're not currently Involved. We have information about it. There's a group table right at, uh, in the little lobby here, and then the connection point tent has information, and then the app and the webpage have all of it as well. All right, that was all the introduction. You guys ready now to talk a little bit about Sabbath? A couple of thoughts here on this first practice of Sabbath before we close with communion and worship. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word to rest, and traditionally it has meant this day of ceasing from work. And I think an important question to ask is, well, why do we begin with this particular practice? Why start with Sabbath? Why not start with, like, reading our Bible or something like that? Well, we start with Sabbath for a couple of reasons. One is this. We begin here because I think this is actually the foundational practice of all the spiritual disciplines, you can almost connect them all back to this idea. It may also be the most challenging for us as busy people here in Davis, California. It might be the most countercultural of all the practices. And so we begin with this one because the practice of Sabbath is about recognizing the sacredness of time. 
And no matter who you are, what stage of life you might be in, we all have to sort of wrestle through how do we use the time that we've been given. I came across a new term recently, time famine. There's uh, you know, sociologists and social commentators who, who are uh, arguing that we exist in a world of time famine. That we are so busy, rushed, hurried, we're stretched so thin that we now have this lack, we, we constantly feel this lack of time and margin in our life. I think a part of that is because we've turned time into this commodity. We've rejected time as a sacred gift. And so one of the invitations of the Sabbath as a practice is to reclaim the sacredness of the time that we have. I want us to see how this works through three different lenses. First lens is this. We need to view Sabbath as an act of resistance. Sabbath as an act of resistance. A little bit of the Old Testament story. Uh, God comes to this guy named Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. Your, your family, your descendants are going to be the vehicle through which I bring salvation and restoration to the world. Big calling, right? This family begins to grow. A couple of generations later, there is a famine of food that forces them to escape to Egypt. And it's in Egypt that they find relief at first. They find food and survival as a people. But that becomes very bad news for them when they become enslaved by the king of Egypt. And so for the next 400 years of their story, they make the bricks that build the Egyptian empire. Every day the same. Wake up, make bricks, go to sleep, do it all over again. The only thing that really changed for them was how many bricks they made in a given day. Now think about that for a minute. What does that do to a collective imagination? Wake up, make bricks, go to sleep, do it again. Generation after generation where all you are is a brick maker, a cog in a machine, only useful in your ability to produce something. Then all of a sudden, in this extremely disruptive moment, God shows up, this God that you've heard some rumors about, shows up, rescues you from slavery, leads you to freedom, and then out in the desert tells you to do this. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant even your animals get a break. Any foreigners residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember, you were slaves. You were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This God says, you are not a slave. You are not a machine. Time is not meaningless. It is sacred and it is holy. And there are some days that are different than other days. In the desert, we see God has rescued his people from Egypt, taking them physically out of Egypt, but he's still getting the Egypt out of them, if you will. In the same way, Sabbath is a way, for us, a way for us to get the Egypt out of us, resisting this empire mentality that all you are is what you produce. When we rest, when we cease, 
We resist all these forces that conspire to turn us into a commodity, the forces that form us in the ways of busyness and workaholism and consumerism. We resist being defined by what we do. And instead, we delight in the sacredness of time and moments and stepping out of the race to slow down, to breathe, to rest, to enjoy. So Sabbath is an act of resistance. Second lens, Sabbath is a picture, gives us a picture of shalom. Shalom is this very rich Hebrew word that can be translated to English as peace, but a much fuller definition of shalom is that this is the way God intended things to be. It's God's good ordering of his creation. In the creation account, Genesis chapter 1, we see the sacredness of time on full display. There's this repeated refrain. There is evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. This goes on for six days until the seventh day is very different. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, but the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, God does not rest because he's worn out from his six days of creating the universe. He rests because the world he made is good and it is worth enjoying. He rested because time is sacred. He rested because there are some days that are not like other days. When we do not rest, we violate the created order, God's good ordering of creation. One very simple example is this. We need to sleep, and we will die if we don't sleep. And in the same way, we kill ourselves a little bit every day when we do not cease and rest. Rest is a good gift, which leads us to the third lens, we also see Sabbath as a grace. When Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he is saying this day off is for you. This is a gift. It is a day where we remember it's not all on us. We don't carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. The earth will still turn. The sun will still come up. Widgets will still get made, stuff will be bought and sold, and we don't need to be a part of it for that day. It is a gift, it is a grace, a reminder also that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot work enough to justify ourselves. As our kids sing, Jesus has the whole world in his hands. He has done the saving, justifying work for us. On the cross, through his death and resurrection. And so we can rest, both in the sense of taking a break from work, but also in this very deep soul sense of a secure identity because of what God has done for us. And this is really good news. Now this series, this this conversation, adventure, whatever you want to call it, called Practice, is, is sort of a passion project 
for me. So much for me has gotten unlocked in my life by engaging in these practices, by seeing discipleship as formation, not just as a sort of program that you do along with all the other things that you are doing. So I've been really looking forward to this series and what this is going to mean for our community. I've also been looking forward to this particular week, but for some different reasons. We started with Sabbath again because I think it is so foundational to all the other practices. But I also picked it first because out of all of them, I thought this is the one that I am an expert on. So let's start with that one, right? Let's start with the one that I know the best. And the past like four or five months, I've realized that I, I am back to the novice stage when it comes to this practice. I want to share real quickly just a, my kind of overview of my journey with Sabbathing and then we'll... Um, and I'll give you a couple of things uh, to think about as you sort of create your own plan, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll close. Uh, several years ago, when Amy and I were living in Boston, she'd just finished grad school and started working full-time. I had transitioned from working like three or four different jobs to full-time ministry. And uh, our schedules were, were packed full of things. Um, I had a lot of things going on at night because I was doing student ministry. And she, you know, had more of a nine-to-five sort of job. And we just had this sense that, like, wow, we are going really fast, and we're going to get burnt out if we keep going at this pace. So for us, Sabbath began as, like, let's just have a day off. Like, let's just have one day during the week where we don't work. By the way, my supervisor at the time, and keep in mind, this was a ministry job, said, hey, this is great that you're doing this practice called Sabbath, but just don't let it interfere with your work. Which is interesting. Anyway, for us, it started off as this day off. And then I started to find that the Sabbath grew into other areas of my life. I can remember very vividly sitting uh, in our living room. Amy was on one side doing something. I was on the other side uh, on, a, on a laptop. I was on Facebook. I was chatting with all of the students that I was doing ministry with. And Amy said something to the effect of, it's like they're here in the living room with us. And so I started to implement this curfew where after a certain Time of day, I was no longer on that. I kind of shut off communication with people so that I could just be home and just be present there and not still working. Then when we had kids, we had to learn some new ways to incorporate them into this practice. For a long time, we had Mondays off, and especially before they started school, this was a really fun day for us to just spend time as a family. Sometimes it was really lazy. Other times we'd go on adventures. We'd have fun breakfast. They, they would, you know, they'd look forward to this. They'd wake up on Thursday morning. Is it Sabbath today? Like, nope, you got a few more days. Hang in there, guys. <laughs> but they really loved it. But then they've started school. And, and again, our lives are just kind of in a whole new phase uh, during this season. And to be quite frank, I've gotten to a place where for me, there's very little resisting in my Sabbath practice right now. There's uh, uh, not a lot of grace, not a lot of gift uh, in my Sabbath practice right now. And so I'm really excited about the next couple of weeks because I think for me, for our family, we need a big uh, recalibration with this and some ways to figure out how do we practice this in this new stage of life. Now, even though I've totally revoked my expert card, I do want to suggest a couple of, of, of things that I think are really helpful as you create a Sabbath practice for yourself. First is this, you must, this sounds like a, a really no-brainer kind of thing, but it's, it just needs to be said, you must create space to rest. 
And I know for, uh, for uh, each of us in this room, we are different, uh, we're in different stages of life and we have different personalities and we uh, engage with God in very different ways. Some of us do that by reading a book, others by being in nature. There's a lot of different pathways in which we connect with God. You'll have to figure out what some of these things look like for yourself, but you must create some space to rest. Whether that's a full day off, whether that's a series of afternoons or series of moments, whatever it looks like for you, you need to be off the clock. So whatever you need to do to make sure for this time, I will not work. Do what you need to do to make that happen. Second thing is this. I think it's really helpful to turn off your phone or close your laptop or do whatever you need to do to make sure that that uh, communication connection is not interrupting you. This is a big one for me. I've been really bad about this. Third, I would suggest not spending any money. Now, if you want to go out for a a nice cup of coffee, if you want to go to brunch, I think those things are, are great. What I'm talking about here is Sabbath is not the day to go run all of your errands. It's not the day to do retail therapy on Amazon. Um, As much as you can, try not to engage in your normal consumer patterns. And then on the positive side, in the space that you create, say yes to one or two things that you find fun, that bring you joy, that allow you to feast and to celebrate and to receive that day, that moment as a gift. Say yes to whatever reminds you you are a creature and you have a creator and savior who loves you. And that you are so much more than what you do, what you produce. I don't know what you need to do. Maybe it's read a good book. Maybe it's go on a long walk. Maybe it's spend some time alone. Maybe it's spend some time with the people that you really love. Maybe you listen to your favorite album or watch your favorite movie. Maybe you play uh, with your kids for an hour without being interrupted. Maybe you go to the park, ride your bike, hike a mountain, eat a great meal, drink some wonderful wine, have a great conversation, get lost in your favorite hobby. Find what you need to do, those one to two things that you can say yes to. And then remember the sacredness of time. That not every day is the same. Remember the gift of being human. You are a creature, not a machine, a person, not a producer. And remember the good news that it is Jesus who saves us and justifies us that in him all things hold together. And then may you have a blast. So much fun exploring this practice and what it looks like for you. Let's pray. Father, we are um, uh, people who want to do a lot of things and achieve a lot of things. And so oftentimes we say yes to so many things that fill up our lives and our schedules um, that push us into this place of time famine where it feels like we're so busy, we're stretched so thin. So, Father, we begin by repenting, confessing that we have lost the beauty and sacredness of the time that you have given us. 
Father, give us creativity, inspiration as we begin to experiment and engage in this practice, what it might look like to say yes to some things, to say yes to rest, to resist the, the forces that want to turn us into a producer, a commodity. May we be reminded of your great love for us that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. And there are things that we get to do in the world that are good, but we hold those loosely and we trust that even when we stop doing them, you are with us, you are holding all things together. And Father, thank you for the deep truth that it is Jesus who has done the work of salvation on our behalf. Who through going to the cross, dying that death, his resurrection from the dead three days later has made it possible for us to be in relationship with you, which brings a deep sense of soul rest. Not needing to prove ourselves or earn anything, we can live in your kingdom, in your rhythms, in your way of life. Thank you for this good gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.